Welcome, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it is the 6th day of December 2011, and today I'm talking to our old friend and regular guest here on CorbettReport.com, Tom Secker, of the brand new website InvestigatingTheTerror.com. That's all one word, InvestigatingTheTerror.com. Uh, Tom Secker, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, lovely to talk to you too. Well, as I say, you've got a brand new website, so let's start with that. I, I just uh, let's let people know about your new website and what they can find on it. Well, I mean, um, I decided to build a website because I'd got a bit bored of um, the options available to me on writing a blog through Blogspot, and also because I think um, you've mentioned this before that we should, as much as possible, be trying to get away from dependence on websites like Blogspot and YouTube and all of the kind of, if you like, the mainstream internet channels for information, for putting information out there. I mean, we should use them, but we shouldn't be dependent on them. And so I was thinking for some time I, sh I should have my own website to try and consolidate my research together and, and also to try and sort of give me a a push in the right direction and try and get me writing more and get me producing more stuff and, and putting more stuff out there for people to access and for, for people to think about. So I, I built this website, uh, investigatingtheterror.com, and it's largely a research site. It's largely a, um, there is a document archive there that is ever expanding. I mean, the version that's up there now is, is very much a kind of preliminary version that I, I threw together in a few days. Um, my intention is to just keep expanding on that and, and keep adding new things to it. Um, the main sections there are on terrorist attacks, on terrorism trials, and on covert operations. And obviously, to some extent, all of those three interlink anyway. Um, but I try to keep it separate just so that it, it makes the navigation a little easier and it, it means the thing is a little bit more spread out and, and a little bit more accessible. Uh, the main thing I've put together for the new website, and this is an ongoing series, is an ebook series, a, a PDF file ebook series that's obviously completely free to anyone who wants to download it. Um, and these will be on particular covert operations that we know that we have a lot of, uh, of source information on, or particular terrorists, or particular terrorist double agents, or, you know, things like that. So just rather than having people sort of chase all over the internet trying to find, you know, a document here, a document there, download from this newspaper, download from that website, just to try and consolidate it a bit and so that if people want, you know, a very solid and, and comprehensive collection on one of the various themes that I'm, I'm putting these books together on, they can just go to the one place and just download that. And it's not just a collection of documents, it's also, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it also has an introduction that I've written that outlines what I think the significance of each document is and sort of summarizing the overall story so that people can find this more accessible because these, these themes are very important but not necessarily that easy to know how to get into them. You know, what's your entry point? What's your access point? And so in some ways my website is simply designed to be that, an access point so that people can go there they can take a look at what I've done and hopefully it, it will give them some, some provocation and, and give them some foundation for doing their own investigations and their own research. 
Well, I, I trust that it will, and I've only really begun to browse through the document section and some of the resources that are available there, but I must say I'm, I'm almost unreasonably happy that you, you did this because I think it is a much nicer website to, to navigate through than the old one. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to using this as a resource in the future with all of these great documents. And I noticed that you have a, a Vimeo channel, perhaps a brand new one with some, uh, some things that you don't have on your YouTube channel, so I'm glad to see that as well. Yeah, yeah, I put together the Vimeo channel as a kind of, um, I mean, my YouTube channel is, I basically set up for putting my 7-7 films on and also for uploading slowly and steadily over time, uploading this kind of vast collection of clips of news clips and other footage that I have to do with 7-7 that obviously I, I used as the source material for my documentaries. Um, and so I thought I could do with another video channel, another video resource that I, I can put some of the, the stuff that's more peripheral to 7.7 or, or simply has nothing to do with 7.7 um, because obviously I'm interested in terrorism beyond that one attack and that one story and I thought I'll put up some of my collection of, of documentaries that for the most part aren't readily available online. I thought I would put them all up there and so that people, again, would have a place where they, they can just go and sort of browse through a selection of, of different films on, on different topics related to spies and related to intelligence services and terrorism and state sponsorship and all the rest and sort of, you know, pick out something that takes their fancy and, again, hopefully it will make it a bit more accessible and, and make it a bit more easy for people to do something with this. Well, I certainly think it, it will do just that. So once again, I hope people will go to investigatingtheterror.com. And on the note, obviously, of terror investigations and expanding out from our previous conversations, which have focused quite heavily on 7-7 and some of the characters in that um, scenario that played out. Mm. Well, today I'd like to, to expand out into a, a very fascinating topic, but one that's so broad and so the, the scope and breadth of the uh, the topic we're covering today is, is just overwhelming to the point where it boggles the mind where to even begin a conversation like this. I'd like to talk about triple agents, uh, the, the shadowy figures that seem to populate and infest these terror narratives to a surprisingly large extent of uh, agents that were supposedly working for the one government, but actually working for Al-Qaeda or vice versa, or maybe both, or, you know, D, none of the above. Some of these <laughs> narratives are so convoluted and bizarre. But again, it's such a broad um, subject that it's difficult to know where to begin. But perhaps we can start by naming some of the characters who have been identified in some of these terror narratives as triple agents. Well, I mean, the big one is, is Ali Mohammed. Um a lot of people understand that going back to the Soviet-Afghan war in the 1980s, that the CIA was very much involved in, if you like, fostering uh, militant Islam and encouraging it, obviously funding, equipping and training uh, a lot of these people. Um, but then there's kind of like a 12-year gap from the end of the Soviet-Afghan war in 1988-1989 through to 9-11. Um, and not... A lot of people don't, I don't, I don't think really appreciate sort of what was going on in that period and how Al-Qaeda, if you like, developed from a uh, guerrilla network, a sort of the Mujahideen, into a urban terrorist network capable of things like the 1998 African embassy bombings and I suppose at least theoretically capable in some ways of, of carrying out something like 9-11. Not that I really believe that, that Al-Qaeda was the, the force behind that, or certainly not the sole force behind that attack. Um, 
But that is an evolutionary period from, like I say, a sort of rural-based mujahideen into an urban-based terrorist group. Um, and the main figure, I suppose, that comes up in, in that story that fills that 12-year gap, or at least mo most of that 12-year gap, is this chap, Ali Mohammed, who was, let's see, he was born in Egypt. He's Egyptian. Uh, well, Egyptian-American. He, he later got American citizenship. Um, born in Egypt in, I think, the 1950s. Uh, grew up in Egypt. He became somewhat radicalized, at least according to, to the story we have available. Um, when he was um, a teenager, he was off with his uncle in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, herding goats, herding sheep and goats. And some of the animals sort of wandered across the border into Israel, and there was a kind of set to with the Israeli border security forces, and apparently his uncle ended up sort of being abducted by these uh, Israeli security forces and had his feet scalded with, with boiling water. And this sort of horrific act against his relative was apparently what turned Ali Muhammad from being a relatively ordinary young man into something of a Islamic radical, at least up to a point. Um, he becomes involved with the radical movements in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, eventually with Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He also joins, and this is a little strange, he joins the Egyptian army and he does very well. I mean, the guy was obviously, a, you know, a good physical specimen. He was obviously a very intelligent man as well. And he rose up the ranks in the Egyptian army. I can't quite remember what he ended up being uh, ranked as. Um, but simultaneously, as he was becoming more involved with these Islamic radical movements in Egypt in the late 70s, he was rising up the ranks of the Egyptian army. Then in, uh, I think it was 1981, the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated by members of the same army unit that Ali Mohammed was uh, connected to. Um, they, they, you know, just it, during a military parade, a, a unit of, of, that was in the parade just sort of broke off and sprayed the grandstand with machine gun fire and killed Anwar Sadat. Um, but this doesn't seem to have had anything to do with Ali Mohammed because at that point he was actually, <clears throat> uh, he was in the United States. He was on a sort of officer exchange program at Fort Bragg in the United States where they train the U.S. Special Forces. They train the Green Berets and the Delta Force and, and all of that. Um, but as students of Egyptian history, recent Egyptian history, will be aware, after the Sadat assassination, there was this big crackdown in Egypt on Islamic movements, particularly what you would call Islamic radical movements, the ones that are both politicized and militant, I suppose. Uh, so one of the things that happens here is that the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, is thrown in prison, so is Ayman Zawahiri, and to our knowledge, they are both subjected to torture. Um, that's probably not a particularly controversial uh, issue. I mean, the Egyptian secret service are quite renowned for using torture, so it's, it's highly likely that what they were saying is true. Um, among the other things they do is they also kick Ali Mohammed, they kick him out of the army, the Egyptian army, uh, for being a radical, for being involved with the Muslim Brotherhood and being involved with, with that whole movement. Um, so this is in 1982, 1983. He, for about a year and a half, he works for an Egyptian airline, works a security job for an Egyptian airline. Then, 
it starts to get a little bit strange because he leaves the airline and apparently walks into the United States Embassy in Cairo and asks to talk to the local CIA man, the local sort of CIA boss for that embassy, and offers his services to the CIA. Uh, <clears throat> they accept him, they sort of recruit him as a spy, they send him off to Germany, I think to Hamburg, and they tell him they want this to, him to infiltrate this mosque that they think is linked to Hezbollah, um, and they you know, send him in there. He, again, this is according to newspaper reports and things, we don't have any primary source on this information, but he goes to this mosque in Hamburg, sort of undercover, turns up there and tells them that he's working for the CIA. He tells them that he's a spy. The agency apparently had another mole within that mosque, so this story gets back to them, and they end up, and they decide that Ali Muhammad cannot be trusted, so they supposedly sack him. But shortly after they supposedly sack him, he comes to the United States on a visa that we can only assume was ultimately issued by the CIA. Um, because normally, if someone's been kicked out of, if you, someone you know about, and they've been kicked out of the Egyptian army for being an Islamic radical, you wouldn't normally give them a United States visa unless you had some other purpose in mind for them, unless you had some other thing in mind for them. So he comes to the United States. A uh, year or two down the line, he joins the U.S. Army. He, again, rises the ranks a bit. He ends up being posted back to Fort Bragg. So you have this supposed, you know, in broad terms, this supposed terrorist working for the US military at their specialized training base where they train their counter-terrorism special forces. Um, I mean, what are the odds of that happening? Of all the places that Ali Mohammed could have been posted to in the whole of the United States military network, they, they post him to the very place that I suppose a terrorist would least want to be, you know. In any case, almost everyone who knew him at Bragg, at Fort Bragg, uh, thought he was CIA. They all thought he was a spook. Um, and they said so. They said so in court testimony. They've said so in interviews repeatedly. Um, they all thought, you know, continuing beyond his alleged brief flirtation with the CIA back in, in the mid-1980s, they thought his relationship was continuing. So he serves in the U.S. military up until 1989. Um, he then leaves, but he's still in the U.S. Army Reserve for another, I think it's five years. In that period, that's at the end of the Soviet-Afghan war, in that period he becomes heavily involved with the Blind Sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, with the Blind Sheikh's group up in New York that are ultimately responsible for several acts of violence, including, it seems, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And Ali's role there is to train most of these people, most of these people who were responsible for these terrorist attacks, uh, were trained by Ali Mohammed. Um, in fact, I think almost all of them. I'm, I'm struggling to think of one that didn't uh, receive training from Ali Mohammed. So it seems he played a kind of key role in enabling and militarizing that group around the Blind Sheikh so that they would be capable of carrying out strategic acts of political violence, you know, acts of terrorism. Um, he then joins the FBI, I think, shortly after 
the World Trade Center bombing in February 1993, he becomes an FBI informant, but not a counter-terrorism informant, just an ordinary criminal informant. He was reporting on drugs gangs and things like that. And he meets with the FBI several times throughout the 1990s. He also carries out surveillance and provides training for the embassy bombings plot in, 19, in August 1998 and is in some respects the kind of mastermind of that plot. And about a month after those bombings, he is finally arrested in September 1998 and has been, as far as we know, has been in custody ever since. But the problem is he pleaded guilty towards the end of the year 2000, I think it was, but he has never been publicly sentenced. His lawyers won't talk about the case, and he himself we have absolutely no access to in, in terms of trying to interview this guy or trying to find him, because he doesn't even turn up on the, the website for locating prisoners in, in U.S. custody. If you type his name in, nothing comes up. So he is presumably in witness protection now somewhere. Uh, I mean, we don't really know. We don't really know how this story ends. No, and in fact, uh, I believe the last word that, that, that I know of is apparently his wife, um, Linda Sanchez, said in 2006 that she's not allowed to talk about his case because he hasn't been sentenced yet. He's just vanished into thin air, as she put it, which is um, highly bizarre, one might say. Yeah, yeah. So we have this situation whereby a man who was intimately involved with Egyptian Islamic radicalism, with the blind sheikh, with Ayman Zawahiri, he helped Zawahiri get into the United States several times for sort of lecturing and uh, fundraising tours and things like that. He trains all sorts of terrorists all over the world, or if not terrorists, militants at least, all over the world. He trains bin Laden's bodyguards. I mean, that's how sort of, if you like, trusted and how intimately involved he was with these supposedly senior figures in Al-Qaeda is that he trained, he was so trusted that Bin Laden got him in to train his bodyguards. Um, yet simultaneously, this guy is at least working for the CIA for a little while, if not for a very long while. He serves in the US Special Forces, and he's an FBI informant. Um, so he is what you would call a triple agent. He is not just someone who is a double agent working for one spying agency and one target of that spying agency, whether it be a foreign state or terrorist group or whatever, but he is actually working for several different spying agencies, sometimes with some overlap, sometimes simultaneously, um, while also working for the terrorist group that should have been the main sort of target for those spying agencies. Uh, so exactly what his relationship was with any of these entities is, is a bit of a difficult one to, to nail down. Exactly right. And I think the, the, um, the story is, I mean, there's just so many different aspects of this story that is just mind boggling in, in so many ways. But I think it does serve to sort of paint the picture of the, the triple agent as, as this figure that seems to, to have this blessed life where they can waltz in and out of situations and, and seem mm -hmm. to get away with um, all sorts of things that obviously you and I would never be able to get away with. And uh, one of the stories about uh, Muhammad that I, uh, I found particularly interesting was the, the story of him meeting his wife. Perhaps you can share that with people. Ah, yes. Well, on, on his way from Egypt to America in, I think it's 1985, um, on this apparently CIA-sponsored visa, he 
meets an American woman on, on the plane, uh, Linda Sanchez, who is a few years older than he is. Um, and they get chatting, as you do, sat on a plane, long plane across the, uh, across the Atlantic. Um, he apparently charms her. She, she sort of, uh, she makes a comment about Anwar Sadat and says, oh, you know, it was, it was a pity that he was killed. It was, it was a shame. Um, and Ali apparently sort of smiles at her and said, well, you probably only hear the good things about him. He was actually, you know, very repressive. Uh, I mean, Ali, I think, very much was in, in favor of the Sadat assassination. I don't think he had anything physically to do with it, but um, he, he certainly seems to have supported it, been in favor of it. So he meets this woman and they <laughs> it's very difficult to say exactly what the truth in this situation is but in any case when they get to america they get together and several weeks later they get married at a drive-through wedding chapel one of those glorious things that they have on that side of america over near california and nevada and, and that kind of thing um and they they are married and they you know remain married they've never to anyone's knowledge been divorced or separated at any point they remain married to this day um so that's what over 20 years and yeah i if you read the chapter in peter lance's book triple cross which is probably the book on ali muhammad really to read as much as i'm kind of skeptical about certain parts of what lance has to say he has put together a pretty comprehensive book there and it's certainly worth reading um he interviewed Linda Sanchez in 2006, and as you say, she said, Ali still hasn't been sentenced. There isn't really much I can say about this because the case isn't really over yet. Um, but she also made comments about how he'd done a lot of things for this country. He'd done a lot of things for the United States, and that hopefully one day we'd, we'd hear all about these things and that we'd actually know the kind of full story of, of Ali Mohammed's life with, and his relationship with the U.S. government. So she can be added to the list of people, along with everyone at Fort Bragg and several of Ali Mohammed's friends in California, um, who thought that he was working for the U.S. government. Uh, and thought he was working for the U.S. government in a much, for a much longer period and in a much deeper way than his this story about his brief flirtation with the CIA would suggest. Um, there is another angle to look at this, and that's that actually several members of Al Qaeda also thought that Ali Mohammed was working for the CIA, and they did things like they refused to tell him their travel plans and they refused to tell him their real names because they, they distrusted him and they thought that he was working for the Americans. So it seems that pretty much everyone who knew Ali Mohammed in the period 1985 to, say, 1998, pretty much everyone who knew him thought he was working for the CIA all along. Um, that's obviously not definitive proof, but I think it, it makes a strong case. So spinning off from this story, that this fantastic story of this, this man and all of the things he was able to accomplish, what does this really imply about, about what a triple agent is and how they function, if we can really get anything out of this story? I mean, how much, how much of it do we actually know and how much of it is still to be, to be written, I suppose, by future scholars? But, uh, but what can we actually say about what, what this means in terms of the CIA recruiting these people with this checkered past, shall we say? Well, I think it demonstrates that, firstly, the CIA certainly does this. 
the CIA certainly has a hand in an awful lot of different terrorist networks and terrorist groups and plots and obviously even in actual attacks. Um, and not just the CIA. I mean, there is this, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda uh, name that is, it's a kind of useful shorthand. I tend not to use it for various reasons. Um, firstly, I think it is a useful shorthand, but it's a bit of a simplification because we aren't just talking about, uh, say, the equivalent, the terrorist equivalent of a CIA front company. They're a little bit more unruly than that. When you go around sponsoring terrorists, you are playing with fire to some extent. You can't necessarily control what they're going to do. Uh, you become morally and legally responsible for some of the stuff that they're doing. I mean, if you train someone and put a gun in their hand and then they go and shoot someone that you didn't mean for them to shoot, you're still somewhat responsible for, for them shooting that person. Um, but also because I think Al-Qaeda, it kind of misses the point that we're also talking about uh, Al-MI6-da and Al-ISI-da and you know there's there's plenty of other intelligence agencies and and military special forces units and what have you that also have connections to this kind of disparate nexus that we call al qaeda um so the first thing is i think this story does demonstrate that the cia is involved in these things and not just the cia but other intelligence agencies as well it also demonstrates that there must be a degree of uh unwitting duping and uh, the setting up of patsies and the setting up of, I mean, what do you call someone who isn't a patsy because they have actually done something, but they've nonetheless been set up and provoked into doing it? Uh, I suppose dupe is, is probably the best word for that. That while Ali Mohammed was likely working for the US government all along, that doesn't mean that all of his trainees were aware that they were pawns in a more complex intelligence game and a more complex kind of struggle between terrorist groups and intelligence agencies. Um, as a result, Ali Mohammed himself may not have even been fully aware of the role that he was being used for. Um, it, it's difficult to say because we have so little primary information on, on Ali himself. We have a, a, the odd affidavit here, the odd court transcript there, but it, it's piecemeal stuff that's difficult to kind of fit together in any kind of uh, comprehensive narrative. Um, I think it would also, it also kind of demonstrates that, that, that it's a false opposition, I suppose, that this notion of intelligence agencies fighting a war on terror against terrorist groups is, it's a kind of, it's creating a binary opposition between intelligence agencies and terrorists that on closer examination, and not just the Ali Mohammed case, on closer examination, that, that binary opposition just doesn't stand up. It, it almost sort of actively deconstructs itself. Well, that's right. And, and let's expand out from the Ali Mohammed case, because, of course, that is kind of the, the, the obvious example. Um, and, and there's every indication that he, he was working for Well, we know that he was working for the CIA, at least for a, a, some amount of time. How much time, we're not exactly sure. But we, we certainly can point to that. And we do know he was an FBI informant. And we do know that he has been alleged to have been this Al-Qaeda mastermind at the same time. So it's kind of a straightforward case in that regard. But the, uh, there are many other characters in these terror narratives who have... 
uh, similar murky um, pasts and murky murky connections that uh, that often 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 we we don't get to know conclusively whether they were working or not working for this or that agency but but uh, several of them come to my mind how about uh, some of the other characters that we can point to in this regard well i mean one of the best examples would uh, who you've mentioned in several of your reports is uh, Luai sacra who is the apparent mastermind of the 2003 istanbul bombings in turkey you may remember this, where I think they were suicide truck bombings against uh, the British Embassy and an HSBC bank and several other targets as well. And these were, you know, they was, these were very bloody attacks. And for what it's worth, they killed an awful lot of Muslims in these attacks. So to kind of call them acts of Islamic terrorism is, is perhaps a misnomer. But in any case, the convicted mastermind of these attacks is this chap called Luai Sakra, who is a... Um, was he born in Syria to Turkish parents or was he born in Turkey to Syrian parents? In any case, um, he, has been no he was knocking around the sort of Islamic radicalist circuit in Eastern Europe for several years beforehand. He did actually run, um, you remember the, you covered this in your film, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, the MAK, the Maktab al-Kidamat, the services office for the Mujahideen that was set up by bin Laden and Abdullah Azam back in the 80s. Um, and this is a sort of network of fundraising and recruitment that largely functions through mosques, but also functioned through bureaus, through actual office buildings and what have you. And it's expanded from the Pakistan-Afghanistan thing. And they, they, throughout the 1990s, they sort of sprung up all over the world. And one of the branches of this was in Bosnia. And this was used as a kind of funnel for equipment and recruits and money and what have you to fight for the Bosnian Mujahideen, which were in many respects just a kind of replication of the Afghan Mujahideen in as much as a lot of the people are the same people, and they were also being covertly sponsored by Western military intelligence. Um, but the, the local M, uh, MAK office in, in Bosnia was being run by this, this guy, Luai Sakra. Uh, he apparently trained several of the alleged 9-11 hijackers in 99, 2000, something like that. And this is borne out by the FBI's hijacker timeline. So it's probably true that he at least had connections with these people and provided training to them. Whether or not they did 9-11 is obviously something of an open question. Uh, Sacra, simultaneously, while all of this is going on, is also working for pretty much any intelligence service that will have him. Um, he was working for the Turkish intelligence, whose I'm not going to try and pronounce the full name of the Turkish intelligence service. He was also working for Syrian intelligence for a while, um, and at least for a bit, was working for the CIA, and may have even provided the CIA with a warning on the eve of 9-11, maybe a couple of days before 9-11. He told his CIA handlers about this forthcoming imminent plot uh, based around flying planes into buildings. Um, and this is refer referenced in George Tenet, Tennant's book, uh, George Tennant's book, rather, who's, I can't remember the name of his book off the top of my head, but he, he makes a reference to this, you know, Eastern European source giving them this, this very late-on warning about an attack involving planes into buildings. Um, 
and that appears to be a reference to, to Louis Sacra. I mean, there is, there's no other informant whose story also fits with that tale. Um, <clears throat> Sacra himself was arrested in, uh, I think it was August 2005. He had a bit of an accident and blew up his apartment um, in, uh, I think it was in Istanbul. He then flees to eastern uh, further east in Turkey and was apparently planning on then doubling back and, you know, trying to escape and what have you. Uh, but he is picked up at an airport. Um, the descriptions of how, you know, his behavior um, are, are very, very strange, where they basically sort of started asking a few questions and he just gave himself up. He just said, yes, I am the guy you're looking for. Um, they say they found pharmaceuticals on him for manic depression and panic attacks so we can only assume this guy was relatively emotionally unstable um and they said his uh, his face bore the marks of uh, cosmetic surgery like he'd had facial alterations done to try and presumably prevent the authorities from tracking him and from from identifying him so he's another one who, again, is not just working for one spy agency and one terrorist network. He's working for several different spy agencies at once, some of which are, you know, sort of in competition with one another, um, while simultaneously planning and masterminding this horrific terrorist attack in 2003. Indeed, and... So we've we've talked about Ali Muhammad and Lulai Sakra, and of course we've also in previous conversations talked about David Coleman Headley and also uh, uh, Junaid Babar. Babar. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so we we've talked about some of these cases before, and I think one of the interesting common denominators with some of these cases is the fact that these people either either get into the, some sort of limbo where we never find out what happens with them, like Ali Mohammed, or are given a, a, a almost ridiculously light sentences and then released uh, quietly without anyone really knowing about it, um, as in the Babar case. Perhaps you can talk mm -hmm. about that aspect of these, these blessed people who are living these charmed lives. Well, this is something that I, was, I sort of explored, at least with regard to 7-7, in my second 7-7 film, Crime and Prejudice, because... I was asking myself this question of how is it that legal institutions that the police prosecutors and so on, how do they respond to these spies and to these various covert operations that connect intelligence services with terrorists? And going back however long really you want to go back, the answer to that question is that they deal with them extremely badly. Um, they, like you say, either you, they, these people end up disappearing, they end up, you know, being a Kaiser Soze, they just vanish, and, and we never really hear anything further from them or about them. Um, and I haven't seen a news report on the Ali Mohammed case that's more recent than about, I don't know, seven or eight years old. I mean, US journalists, mainstream journalists at least, just don't really seem to be very interested in this case. Um, you had Peter Lance's book in 2006, which was also made into, to some extent, made into a National Geographic documentary, but that's five years ago. There really hasn't uh, been very much new on that case at all since then. Um, Junaid Babar, who was either involved in training the alleged 7-7 bombers 
or he's involved in creating a legend for the alleged 7-7 bombers to make them look like terrorists, depending on sort of which way you interpret the Babar story. Um, he ends up serving about four years in prison. A lot of that time he's actually in relatively low security prison. Um, he's then released on bail, and a couple of years down the line, they commute his sentence to time served. He is now basically a completely free man. Um, Luai Sacra is a bit different because he is actually serving a very, very lengthy prison sentence in Turkey and is likely to never get out. He's likely to die in prison. Um, but David Headley, it's a bit difficult to say exactly what's going on in the Headley case because he pleaded guilty to his role in Mumbai and also to this uh, Danish newspaper plot. Um, way, way back in, I think, March 2010. Earlier this year, as we discussed, he, he testified at the Tawarana trial, um, but he's never been sentenced for his, for his crimes. He's never been, he's, he's been, obviously, he's pleaded guilty to these uh, pretty horrendous crimes, pretty serious crimes, but a year and a half down the line, well, more than a year and a half down the line, we are now, and there's no sign of, it, of him being sentenced, and I mean, I've been trying to sort of keep abreast of that case, and the odd little bit happens here and there, but ultimately, nothing's happened in that case since the end of the Rana trial. In fact, I think Rana, this guy who Headley was testifying against, I don't think he's even been sentenced yet. Um, so there probably is more to come on the Headley story. But in broad terms, the, the issue here really is, are people like the say, British Police Service or the FBI, uh, are they in a position, and I suppose you've got to include the Crown Prosecutors and the Department of Justice as well, are they really in a position to be holding these people to account when, more often than not, they only find out about these people after some horrendous act of violence, like 7-7 or Mumbai or the embassy bombings or whatever, after some horrendous act of violence has taken place, and they usually can't pry too closely into the relationship between these people and the various agencies that have been handling them. And so are our, are our justice uh, institutions being completely compromised by this bloody and dark relationship between our intelligence agencies and the terrorists that they're supposed to be trying to stop? And I think broadly the answer to that question is yes. I think our justice institutions deal with this extremely badly. Whether that's a matter of um, conspiracy, whether that's a matter of it was always planned that way, that it was always planned that Babar would only get a few years in prison and then be let off, or it was planned that Ali Mohammed would basically just sort of disappear into a black hole. I can't, I can't say. I mean, there's a pattern there, but just because there is a pattern doesn't necessarily mean there's some sort of dastardly plan behind it. It may just be that our, our justice institutions are very flexible in, what they, in how they can respond to these things, and in these particular sorts of cases, someone has lent on them, pressure has been applied from somewhere to, you know, let this one slip, or these two slip, or these three, or, you know. It keeps, they keep totting up. Mm.
Well, um, well, you raise an interesting word there when you're discussing the Babar case, and that word is interpret, how you interpret his story. And I think interpretation is a very important part of these triple agent narratives because they do leave so much open to interpretation. Obviously, we are sitting here on the outside and are not privy to all of the whatever secret goings on went on between them and the various intelligence agencies they were we're working for or we're supposedly working for again we can only speculate to a large extent so so mm-hmm. it seems to me that that part of the entire triple agent uh, storyline is that there is this plausible deniability that that when an, an agency who might have been handling this type of person gets caught out they can always say that oh it, well he we didn't know he was actually working for fill in the terrorist organization there um, and and I, I I don't know whether that just is part of and to a certain extent if this was all legitimate and everything is above board then perhaps that that really is just part of working with these compromised people but uh, but on the other hand of course it also presents the possibility that intelligence agencies could make use of that to carry out some sort of false flag event. Well, sure. I mean, this puts us in the realm of what's commonly called intelligence failures. The the notion that either an intelligence agency had ample information and ample warnings about some imminent plot, some imminent attack, that they could have they, and probably should have been able to stop it from happening. Um, the, the triple agents thing is a little bit more complex and subtle than that because it's kind of saying, you know, if these people were informants for you or were working for you for at least some of some time, then you should have been able to keep an eye on them and should have been able to find out what they were doing and, and what they were up to. But the problem with with all of that is that the whole the whole kind of question is perhaps being phrased in the wrong way because it assumes that the purpose of these intelligence agencies is actually to stop the attacks. Whereas in many cases, as we know, they either seem to be letting them happen or seem to be making them happen in usually using proxies and some degree of compartmentalization and, and some degree of degrees of separation. And like you say, plausible deniability is created through these things. But nonetheless, a lot of these attacks do seem to have had the hand of state sponsorship and, and uh, behind them. So I think the whole question of intelligence failures and even the phrase intelligence failures to me is a it's kind of doublespeak um, or newspeak that what they are telling you by phrasing all the questions in the way of, oh, did we fail to stop it? Did we fail to prevent it? What they're saying is you're not allowed to talk about the other possibility here. We deliberately failed or we actually just planned this thing out and succeeded. Um, And after every single major terrorist attack of, I don't know, probably the last 30 years or so, at least the ones that I've looked into, there has been this allegation. There has been this, you know, what did the intelligence agencies know and when did they know it? But as I, I sort of stuck there in in my second 7-7 film, I think the more apt question is what the hell were the intelligence agencies up to and why were they doing it? You know, the intelligence agencies aren't passive. They don't just sit there and receive information and then draw up threat warnings or go and spy on some other people because of it or, or things like that. They are actively involved in this. They cross over that line almost on a continual basis. Um... <coughs> So to see them as just sort of passive recipients of information is, 
I, I think, a complete mischaracterization. It's a complete misunderstanding of what intelligence agencies actually do. Um, they are very actively involved in this. The question is, how deliberate is it? And I think, I mean, blowback is, is a reality. Um, sometimes things happen that they did not intend to happen. Um, and we can go back to uh, Gladio, Operation Gladio in Western Europe, uh, where you had various intelligence agencies within NATO countries who were involved with planning and provoking and ena enabling terrorist attacks on a large scale, a very large scale, and these terrorist attacks were false flags to be blamed on leftists, usually communists or anarchists, and they would use this to try and sort of steadily shift the general politics to the kind of centre-right of the political spectrum, that as communism was becoming more democratically supported, they wanted to counter that by demonising it. Um, and the easiest way is really, to be honest, is to blow some things up, to kill a few people and to blame it on the people that you want to blame it on. So that's what they did. Um, and there is one particular character that comes out of this Gladio story called Vincenzo Vinciguerra. He was a member of Odine Nuovo, and Avangardia Nazionale. Uh, he was a, a neo-fascist, a right-wing terrorist. Um, and in 1972, 1973, he carries out a terrorist attack in a little rural town in northern Italy called Petiano. If you look up the Petiano bombing, um, you, you'll find all about this. Um, and this was basically, he planted a bomb inside a car, phoned up the local police station and said, you know, there's this suspicious-looking car with bullet holes in the windscreen. I think you should, you should go and have a look at it. Some military police, some, um, what are they called? I can't remember their names now. Some military police come and turn up. They check the car out. I think they lift up the bonnet and the thing explodes and kills them all. Um, and this thing, the whole thing was blamed on anarchists and... Vinci Guerra himself had scratched a five-pointed kind of communist star into the bonnet of this of this car as a, you know, part of the false flag tactic, as part of the, you know, trying to twist the investigation towards other people. Um, but this was not, as far as I can tell, this was not premeditated by the Italian state. A lot of the attacks in that period, um, Piazza Fontana, the Bologna bombing, probably the murder of Aldamoro, were, I think planned by people within the, the Italian state, within the Italian military intelligence. But the Petiano bombing was probably blowback. It was probably the unintended consequence of uh, this covert operation, this sponsorship of, of neo-fascist terrorists. Um, at least this is what Vinci Guerra said in his interviews. He said, you know, this was born as an act of revolt against the manipulation of the state, that they were almost kind of biting the hand that fed them. So blowback is a very real possibility. The unintended violence that can spawn out of this can very genuinely be unintended and be, I, I suppose, an intelligence failure in that sense. And we can see examples of this coming through to today. Uh, another triple agent figure who we've never discussed before um, is called Hamam al-Balawi. Do you remember him? I can't say as I do, no. He's the guy who blew himself up at that CIA base in Afghanistan a couple of years back um, and killed, 
I don't know, half a dozen CIA agents and a couple of Blackwater employees who were certainly not there working for the CIA. Obviously, they were there working for the CIA. Um, and he was an informant for the CIA, and he was also an informant for the Jordanian, for Jordan's, I think they're the General Intelligence Directorate, who are one of various Middle Eastern uh, intelligence directorates that were set up by MI6 and the CIA. So, again, we've got this situation of him working for multiple intelligence agencies and simultaneously being a terrorist. And he used this access that he had to get into this CIA base in Afghanistan, uh, apparently blow himself up, kill several people. Um, and that, I think... I've never come across anything in looking into that case that suggests that something else happened there. I think that story is probably true, uh, even though it is the official story, and obviously I'm always sceptical of the official story. I think in that case, it probably is actually true. And in that individual case, that probably is blowback. That probably was unintended. I don't think that the CIA deliberately killed their own people. I mean, anything's possible. I'm not saying that the CIA wouldn't do that. I'm just saying that I don't think they did in, in that particular case. So this whole notion of intelligence failures, um, it's one that needs more examination. Um, it's, it's one that we, <clears throat> we should try and understand in a more complex and subtle way because these intelligence agencies act with almost no oversight whatsoever um, and because they tend to lie about anything and everything that they can lie about, there's not an awful lot of trust <laughs> for them, quite rightly. Um, and this lack of trust and this habit of lying then obviously spawns conspiracy theories, some of which will be true and some of which won't be true. Um, so I think we need to uh, interrogate, it's that word again, I think we need to interrogate this notion of intelligence failures a lot more closely and look at its, it, the implications of this because what normally comes out of this, this dialogue is that a terrorist attack happens, there are allegations of intelligence failures, but all that really serves to do is reinforce the official story and makes the only question, why didn't you stop these people, rather than were these people actually responsible for this? Um, and usually the intelligence agencies are in a position to twist that and say, oh, well, we didn't have enough resources, or we didn't have the right legislative powers, or we didn't have the right access to certain technology. So basically, you've got to give us all of these things. You've got to give us more money. You've got to give us more power. You've got to take away any oversight that might exist. And then we might, in the future, hypothetically be able to actually stop a terrorist attack. Um, so the, the whole notion kind of feeds into the hands of these intelligence services when it should, from the sort of way it's, even the way it's being phrased, it should actually cast doubt on them. In fact, it usually ends up doing the opposite. And so in that sense, I think it is, you know, an element of doublespeak, an element of, of newspeak. Well, you raise an interesting point, and that's that I think the idea of intelligence agencies that's put forward in the popular imagination is of these agencies that are 
fundamentally defensive in nature that they're trying to defend from terrorist attacks or you know disrupt attacks from other countries or things of that nor nature mm. and to the extent that spying and, and other types of um, intrusive activities go on it's only in that defensive role but of course we know from historical fact that of course intelligence agencies are used in offensive roles and have been for well since their inception and we can look back to even of course uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh in 53 and other such operations right from the birth of the CIA um, that that the, the point to the fact that they're often used, if not if not primarily used, for an offensive purpose purposes in basically as an extension of military might, and as one would expect. But of course, we still think of, or we we are still presented with the idea that these are fundamentally defensive agencies. So, how does the uh, the, the fact that these are, um, agencies are often used for offensive purposes complicate the notion that uh, that they would like to put forward that these triple agents are necessary and we must work with these terrorists because we have to prevent the attacks uh sorry what's the question that you're asking the question is they well let me put it this way they are trying to put forward the narrative that they must work with these terrorists in order to to gain the upper hand in this in this war because they're trying to protect the nation but if we know that they are in fact more often than not or, or i don't know if I, we can say that but quite often uh, actually trying to bring a uh, spectacular terrorist attacks and things about of course, in other countries, never in our own, but uh, but they are trying to to cause disruption in other countries as part of the extension of military might. Then, how does that that complicate that 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 excuse that they use for working with these terrorists? Well, it, it goes back to what I was saying before about it, trying to establish their intent, and this is a very difficult thing to do because we know so little about intelligence agencies. I mean, we do have documents on, you know, the Mossadegh operation or the Guatemala operation or the Bay of Pigs or, or whatever, you know, we, we would like to point to as an example of intelligence agencies sponsoring terrorism. But <clears throat> as, as you sort of alluded to there, um, it complicates that perception of, of our intelligence agencies in as much as the vast majority of examples that we know about where they did certainly and definitively intend to sponsor terrorists for a particular political end, uh, pretty much all of those examples are examples that happened overseas. But there are a few that didn't. Um, one would be, uh, are you familiar with the case of uh, Pat Finucan? The name does not ring a bell. He was a Belfast-based human rights lawyer who defended various Republicans uh, who had been accused of terrorism. This is during the war in Northern Ireland, where you had the Republicans in the South who were sort of fighting for a unified Republic of Ireland. Um, and they were mostly Catholics. And you had the Pro Protestants in the North who were still under British control and largely still loyal to the British. And both of these movements had their militant factions and both of them did carry out terrorist attacks. Um, the case of Finucane in particular is significant because he was, he was murdered. He was assassinated by Republican terrorists. He was, they basically tracked him down, burst into his home and shot him in front of his family. I mean, this was, you know, it's, it's a horrible, horrible act of violence that they carried out there. Um, this was in the late 1980s, and ever since then, it has been speculated and argued that, in fact, these Republicans were in some way directed by the British state, 
that they saw this lawyer as a, a nuisance, as someone they wanted rid of, um, as someone who was holding back their supposed war on Republican terrorism. Um, and so they, they used their proxies within the IRA or within the Republican terrorist movement to, to take the guy out, to kill him. Uh, and only very recently, a couple of months ago, we finally kind of got an admission that this, this was entirely true. Um, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland stood up in the House of Commons and officially admitted uh, that they had colluded in this, that agents of the British intelligence and military services had provided the shooters with information on this guy's whereabouts. They basically opened the door and enabled them to do it. Um, and he admitted this and apologized for it, although, of course, there's absolutely no need for a public inquiry because there's never any need for a public inquiry into any of this stuff. Um, so that would be an example of where an assassination has been carried out much, much closer to home. I mean, it was in Northern Ireland. It's not on the British mainland, but frankly, that's a distinction that's far bigger in people's minds than it is in reality. If they'll do it in Northern Ireland, they'll happily do it in London. Um, so how does it complicate the relationship? Um, it, it certainly complicates our interpretation of it because we should be careful to maintain some distinctions in our own mind and certainly be careful not to let our suspicions run away with us. Um, I am not categorically saying that Ali Mohammed was working for the CIA all along. What I am saying is that almost everyone who knew him thought he was working for the CIA and that he got away with so much stuff and so easily that it makes a lot more sense if he was working for the CIA. The whole complex story just makes more sense that way. Um, so what I think is that we should, we in particular, should be careful not, not to get carried away with this and to examine the cases and, where possible, examine the legal proceedings because it's in the legal proceedings that we usually get the strongest clues as to what's actually happened and when and therefore, to some extent, why. Well, that's that's an important point. In fact, that was going to be my next question, because coming back to, to the Ali Mohammed story, for example, it's such a complicated story, and our perception and interpretation of that story depends so much on how much information about that story we have access to and the quality of that information that it does raise the question of how do we begin researching topics like these uh, and what kinds of sources can people turn to if they don't if they they don't have the time or the ability or the energy to go and um, research all of the primary source documents for themselves? Are, are there any p people out there or any re resources that you would recommend for people? I mean, for example, in the Mohammed story, you, you point to Peter Lance's uh, Triple Cross as being one of the definitive works on the subject, but yet you say you have reservations about what he's written. Uh, it, it raises the question, what kinds of sources can people, if not trust, at least uh, reliably use as a resource in this type of investigation? Well, I think people can reliably use Peter Lance's book to get a kind of broad overview and narrative of the Ali Mohammed story. My reservations are that Peter Lance very much tries to present this as a case of failures by the FBI in connecting the dots and failures of prosecutors, particularly uh, Patrick Fitzgerald in prosecuting Ali Mohammed. 
Um, it's that part of the story for reasons that we've just discussed. That part of the story I, I have so many problems with and have so many doubts about. But I think there probably isn't really a, a shortcut way of doing this or at least the best, I suppose the best shortcut way of, of getting into this stuff is probably actually to go on the History Commons website where they have numerous timelines related to various different, uh, various of these characters and, and these attacks and these different events. Um, because their, their stuff is all open source. It's all either taken from books or newspaper reports or government documents or, or whatever. It's all stuff that you can trace back to a relatively authentic or at least known source of information. And they're, they're good summaries. They do give you kind of the whole story in a relatively digestible, relatively accessible format. Um, so, yeah, the History Commons website would be one. Um, but also it's just... I mean, the way I've done it, because I've tried to be, I mean, I've been looking into these figures for years and years, is just to sort of compile it slowly and carefully. Um, not just so that I don't let my imagination and my suspicions run away with me, but also just because it, it, the sad truth is to, to get the, any kind of strong handle on what's or what could be going on here, um, you have to be patient. And so that means reading books. Uh, listening to the enemy, as you would put it, reading books written by people who we don't necessarily trust. We don't necessarily trust their analysis or their conclusions, but if they've written a good book that's actually well-sourced, and from that book we can, you know, go and find some of these sources and read them for ourselves, then the book is worth reading. Likewise, just because a documentary is made by PBS Frontline or is made by National Geographic doesn't mean that there's nothing in there of value it just probably means they're going to shy away from the really hard questions. Um, so what you're most likely to get from watching those things is some good background and a sort of decent telling of the basics of the story. And that's important. You know, you've got to get you've got to get the kind of the fundamentals of the story in straight in your mind. What happened in what order before you can start then trying to ask the questions. Well, why did this particular thing happen then? And what was really at play here? Um, so sorry, sorry if that's a bit of a disappointing answer, but I do think people need to be patient and need to sort of embrace all the sources available to them. I was afraid you'd say that. No, <laughs> of course, it's, it's, it's self-evidently the case that these types of issues just cannot be arrived at through shortcuts. And it is a, a process of compiling this information over painstakingly long periods of time. But it, it, it is frustrating. And I suppose it's one of the ways that, uh, that the, the, the intelligence agencies are able to keep one up on the population of whatever mm. country is that they, they have the ability to obfuscate what they're doing and to create all of these rabbit holes for people. And, and it becomes... Uh, uh, quite an effort and that's why we need researchers like you who are able to put this into documentary format so that people can follow them uh, speaking of your Vimeo account I noticed that you have for example uh, something called BBC Time Watch you have something called the Age of Terror I'm not even sure what these are I haven't perused them yet but perhaps you can tell us about these sources um, well these are BBC documentaries the Age of Terror series is oh, uh, it's a few years old now but it's um, <clears throat> Basically, it's one of their main uh, sort of security and terrorism journalists going through a period from mid-1970s through to the pretty much the present day, looking at 
the basically the history of the development of terrorism. And obviously, again, you've got to be a little bit sceptical. These are BBC documentaries, and the whole thing is to sort of uh, play into this narrative of an ever-increasing terrorist threat. That's, I mean, it, that's all nonsense. Frankly, the CIA have been cooking their books on terrorism for at least 30 years, and that's provable. I mean, you can go, if you can be bothered, you can find their annual reports on terrorism, uh, and you can see a point at which they start cooking the books, they start manipulating these statistics and start creating this impression of a, you know, uphill kind of uphill trend in, in the terrorist threat that is sort of nowadays, you know, that's very much part of the public discourse on terrorism. Um, but nonetheless, there is a lot of very interesting stuff and a lot of very interesting interviews and material in these documentaries. Um, and I just think, you know, it's good to start in some ways from a conventional historical point of view, start by using mainstream sources, knowing full well that they won't ask the questions that you really want to have answered, um, and just sort of see where you can go with them, because you never know what little nugget of information you might find in a BBC documentary that two or three years later just makes something else click into place, and suddenly you, you go, ah, that's the connection, and therefore the question should be rephrased in that sort of a way. Um, another documentary that I recently uploaded on there was a very recent BBC one, I hope they don't take it down, um, on a World War II double agent called Eddie Chapman, who it would take as long a conversation as we've just had to kind of outline the whole of the Eddie Chapman story. But he was basically, he was a double agent. He was recruited by the Nazis, sent to Britain to spy on the British, and immediately gave himself up to the British and worked as a double agent, sending disinformation back to the, his Nazi handlers. But he was also a, an extremely adventurous man, let's, let's say. He, he was... Um, he loved danger, he loved the excitement of it all um, and this documentary in particular is perhaps not all that illuminating but it's certainly very entertaining they actually found some um, some video footage in the BBC's cellars uh, of an interview they'd done with Chapman in the 1990s shortly before he died and he's a very entertaining, you know, he's exactly how you would imagine a World War II double agent to be um, so he, it's it's certainly worth watching if you want to learn a bit about World War II intelligence and if you fancy a bit of a laugh at something that is ultimately a lot more trivial than the question of who was masterminding these terrorist attacks. Yeah, I always like to laugh at these terror incidents. No, that does sound interesting, and I, I will check that out at my earliest opportunity. But, um, of course, not just myself, but I'm sure many of the listeners out there, my must-watch and must-read list just keeps um, mm. ever-evolving mm. and, and growing, and I will never, basically, ever be able to, to read and watch all of it. Just not enough time in a lifetime, I suppose. Well, I, I guess there's no easy way to, to wrap up a conversation like this, just as there's no easy way to broach the conversation itself, because there is just so much to, to cover, and we can only... Just just skim uh, across the surface and go over some of the broad outlines of this. But a, a fascinating topic and one that we, I'm sure, can return to many times in the future on specific cases. But once again, I would like to to wholeheartedly recommend InvestigatingTheTerror.com as a source that people can go to to start perusing. And as you say, it's uh, an evolving source and you're you're adding to it um, all the time. So the document archive and the ebook series, which I have not checked out myself yet, but I'm 
very interested in doing so. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So you're obviously uh, working on the website right now. Is there any other uh, documentary projects or anything coming along at the moment? Uh, there is. I have. Um, I'm putting together what will probably be my last video on Seven Seven, unless something radically changes in the future. And this is a much much shorter. Um, it's probably actually only going to be seven minutes long. Um, and this is just a kind of brief, punchy kind of introduction to the whole cause and issue of Seven Seven Truth. And if you like, a sort of advert for the cause of Seven Seven Truth, because I appreciate that. You know, I've made two documentaries. One was over two hours and one was a little under two hours. They may not be the most accessible for people and it may be difficult for people to watch those and really get a handle on quite where this is all going and where all this has been already. So I thought I'd, I'd make a nice short video that just kind of outlined the key points in a, a, a straightforward way that even someone who is unfamiliar with all of this would be able to get and, and would be able to find useful uh, early in the new year, the next big documentary project is on the Mohammed Hamid case, which is, um, some of you may know this, this is a guy who was basically thrown in prison for going paintballing. Uh, they accused him of running terrorism training camps because the BBC paid for him to go paintballing. I mean, it, it's an absurd miscarriage of justice and a horrifying miscarriage of justice, in my opinion. Um, and I know some of the people involved with that campaign and certainly I met his recently met his daughter who is campaigning for his release so I'm going to try and put together a, a, a good documentary a good strong documentary to to help with that campaign and to help with that cause as well and there are plenty of other ideas in the pipeline but I don't want to say too much now because I don't want to make promises that I can't deliver on well, I do it all the time. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I am very, very much looking forward to those those projects, and I think a short introduction to Seven Seven is extremely important because um, even myself, I was surprised to see the reaction to my nine eleven a conspiracy theory video, which I thought was just sort of a, a sort of just a side project or just something that kind of occurred to me as an afterthought, but it ended up becoming one of my most viewed videos ever. So, um, so you you can you'd be surprised how how those short punchy videos can get out there and get the word out about things that um, that that people think the, uh, the public don't care about but that's only because it's never perhaps never been presented to them in an appropriate way anyway okay. i am yeah well i'm very much looking forward to your future work uh, and i certainly hope that people who haven't yet done so will check out your 77 videos of course on your youtube account which i believe is youtube.com slash 77 archive yeah Yes. Okay. So, of course, they'll be able to find that from investigatingtheterror.com. Tom Seger, always a fascinating conversation, and I look forward to more in the future from our terrorism experts. So, Tom Seger, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.